Hi there, listeners. This is uh, our second episode of Then Again with Ken and Glenn. I'm Ken, and he's... Glenn? Yes. Today, we're going to be uh, talking about history and Game of Thrones, because as we all know, George R.R.R.R.R.R. Martin is on record as saying that quite a bit of European history informed his writing and the TV show, and sort of used that also as a springboard to history and accuracy in television entertainment in, in general. But Glenn, I know that you had some very good thoughts on specifically the War of the Roses and how it makes its appearance in the works of George R.R.R. R. R. Martin. Yes. You know, I, I think that's what's interesting is the Game of Thrones is exactly what the title implies. It is a game where you get the thrones, and as Cersei Lannister says, in this game you win or you die. It wasn't quite as bloody in England's Wars of the Roses, it wasn't quite as brutal, and yet sometimes it was. Almost a third of the aristocracy during the Wars of the Roses in England, which stretched for, what, 30 years? 30 years at least, yeah. Um, were dead. Uh, they killed each other trying to to maintain control of the throne of England. I think Game of Thrones does a really good job pulling those in. Now, of course, uh, the simplified version is that there's Yorks and Lancasters and Red Roses and White Roses. But anyone who's read the history, and if you haven't, you should, <laughs> it's much more complicated than that. It's as complicated as Game of Thrones. There are a lot more houses. There are a lot more families involved. There are a lot of tricky twists and turns that things take. But I think Martin does a good job in translating, obviously not the minute-by-minute -minute history of the War right. of the Roses, but the, the milieu of what it must have been like as these these factions were fighting to control the kingdom. Right, right. And uh, something you said just now when you named the two warring houses in the actual War of the Roses, Lancaster and York, and of course Lancaster and Lannister, which is, you know, the, the Lannister lions and, you know, all that, Cersei's clan, uh, that has always struck me as that has to be intentional. Lancaster, Lannister, the echoes of those two families. And then, of course, York and the Roses, of course, the Tyrell, what is their sigil? The flower or right. rose. So, rose. So, so, so there's some, there were some nice metaphorical or simile-type things going on between the actual War of the Roses and that fictional world. But then definitely, as you say, this, this almost chaos that's going on between these warring factions, I think they show to good effect. In the, Very in the HBO good. series. Yeah, they, uh, you know, they hearken back when, uh, oh, the, fir the first few episodes where the Baratheons are on the throne and, they've, and the, everything's been stable and nice for a couple of decades mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden someone starts mechanizations and everything falls apart. And the entire rest of the series is about the chaos that ensues and right. people trying to... To come out on top. Well, and, uh, you know, the, once again, the echoes with European history, which... Martin does say he has modeled some of this stuff on is striking because you've got Richard II who is deposed so by Henry IV. And so you've got this upstart dynasty that leads to the War of the Roses in England. And same thing, Baratheon deposes the stable order, and then when he dies, Everything there's chaos, chaos again. So, the, so the, I really think there's a strong case for these parallels, specifically with War of the Roses. Now, you and I are both, as, as our listeners may come to know if they listen regularly, you know, we're both big military history geeks, and we, we both uh, have some passing acquaintance with the longbow. We both own actual English made-of-you longbows uh, that we got from Hungary. <laughs> But they're made of you, by God. <laughs> but uh, one of the things in the, in the actual War of the Roses in European history is, of course, if the popular imagination knows anything about longbows in European history, it's Agincourt and the Hundred Years' War and how potent the longbow was then. But the War of the Roses, 
there were far more Englishmen killed by arrows by other Englishmen in the War of Roses. I mean, that's sort of where the longbow reaches most lethal efficiency. And lethal efficiency, and yet, compared to the continent, incredible backwardness. Yeah. The, the War of the Roses retarded the growth of military technology in England because they had all these longbowmen, and that's what they kept using. Right. Whereas on the continent, you see the growth of, of firearms, both carried by individuals as well as the large artillery pieces, which... England fought during the War of the Roses, Wars of the Roses. Right. England falls so far behind that when Henry Tudor of England finally comes to the throne, he has to play some serious catch-up, and if only he had a place to get the money. Oh, perhaps he could destroy the church in England, <laughs> sort of like Cersei does <laughs> in Westeros, exactly. to much greater and more dramatic effect, I might add. Exactly. Exactly. I don't think they blew up the Canterbury Cathedral. <laughs> no, but I'm sure there was wine drank. <laughs> exactly. But on the same tack with the longbow, of course, in many episodes of Game of Thrones, we see bows being used. And, and this is another pet peeve of mine and yours, especially in the Battle of the Bastards, when when bad boy torture guy what is his what is his name again <laughs> Ramsey Ramsey Bolton yes Ramsey bad boy Bolton. torture guy we call him <laughs> <laughs> but it's just this scene where he has the draw and then hold which is the most inefficient way possible to use a bow and arrow you are wasting the kinetic energy and muscle energy of those archers by having them simply hold a drawn bow. That's not how you shoot a bow. And it's not how you shoot an English longbow because they have draw weights of up to 100 to 120 pounds. No one, even the guys back then, could not draw it and hold it. When you fire the bow, because these have huge draw weights, which is what gave the English longbow. And maybe we should explain very quickly what draw weight is yes. to our so, listeners who don't know. So the so a, a bow, I'm going to... Assume that y'all know what it is. It's a stick with a it's a curved stick, a stick with, with a string. string on it. And when you pull that string, the wood and the type of wood plays into this as well, gives a certain strength and has a certain flexibility. So when you pull that string back, the bigger the piece of wood, the particular type of wood, the stronger that wood is, and it takes more strength to pull the string back. So the draw weight right, is, is measuring poundage. Right. And so, you know, going back to ancient times, some of these bows would only have 30, 35 pound draw weight because they're easy and they haven't developed this methodology yet. But by the time you get to the height of the English longbow, you have 100, 120 pounds. The ones they found on Mary Rose. The, from the a ship little that bit, sank in around the 1540s. Yes, yes. <laughs> The, uh, the, there's a little past the War of the, War of the Roses time. But, but it shows what it could develop to. To 120 pounds. So you actually well, I think actually pull. in, in uh, what's his name's book? The actor from the Harry Potter movies who helped well, write that book. if you had asked, I could have said it. Yeah. The Great War Bow. The Great War Bow is the name yes. of the book. But, the, but in that, they say that some of them were tested at 150 even. So you have to pull that much weight back. Now, you can, these are... Huge arrows. These arrows are like three quarters of an inch in diameter. The The range is fantastic, but you have to be able to pull that weight back. That is not something the average person can do. You have to train from late childhood life, yeah. to be able to do yeah. these, which is what, what it was. It was so unique to England, these strong bows. Right, right. So so now we can actually talk about how you actually would yeah, fire so, the process. So, <laughs> With all of that backstory. So first you've got an arrow, and you, and you put the arrow on the string, and then you stand there, and you prepare, and basically, of course, you can't see this, but you'll have to pretend. So as it, pretend I'm drawing the string, one, two, three, and at that point, I let go. And as you're laying that arrow across the, the bow and the string, you're already looking downrange at your target. 
It's not right. you draw it up to your cheek, and look, aim. and then. No, it's you're aiming, aiming, and, and, it's, and the instant it reaches your cheek, you're ready to fire. It's, it's very instinctive. Yeah. Again, lifetime of training. Lifetime of training, so it's very rapid because what the rate of fire was. 12 to 20 arrows a minute, depending on who's doing it. Yeah, so as much as I love watching some of the battle scenes in Game of Thrones, as much as I love seeing a good arrow shower, anytime they do that nonsense, it just, oh. And they do that in every movie. And the, every Hollywood seen. movie. Now, one thing, uh, I will give Martin this. He has certainly done some history reading. I like to think he's a closet history nerd. <laughs> Uh, but the Battle of the Bastards, um, Can I? Yeah, yeah yes. Uh, it is the, we've all imagined. So Can I was an ancient Roman battle. Hannibal, who I think everyone has heard of, tricks the Romans into attacking him, pulls them into the center of his because line. Because he has inferior forces, but tricks them into fighting a battle on his terms on an open field with I'm, no cover. Exactly. And so, in effect, Hannibal totally <laughs> surrounds the Romans. And the Battle of the Bastards gives you a sense of this as they're pushed and pushed and pushed in. And by the way... The real battle of Cannae last, lasted hours. Exactly. Hours of just stabbing guys with swords. Well, and, 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 and here's the thing that, that once again underscores the, the refrain of you know nothing, Jon Snow. That's the very strategy he laid out that he was going to do. And now I'm getting more into technical yes. script writing stuff. But he, he, he knows what to do. And just because his brother gets shot by an arrow... He attacks, and now, and now Ramsey does the exact same strategy. Yep. But I do love the fact that it's based on a strategy that really was carried out in the real world. And that has, to my knowledge, the intensity of what it must have been like to be crushed oh. underneath the mass of men as they are all slowly getting killed from the outside in has never been put on screen. And that scene, more than... Almost any scene in Game that of Thrones. suffocating, just, helpless, you just got to crawl to life and, somehow. Yeah, and it's it's it was brutal, and that was not made up. Right. It was based on... Well, it's based on some of the experiences at Ashencore, the experiences at Kani. It's just don't, horrific. Don't don't let that happen, kids. <laughs> yeah, don't yeah don't get buried under a pile of corpses while you're <laughs> fighting. Uh, that's just good sound advice for anybody. So, you know, with, with this, with George R.R.R. R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones... What he's done, though, is fictionalize actual history. And this sort of segues into a sub-theme of what, I, of what I at least want to explore today. And that's when, a, when a, a writer, director, screenwriter, movie producer, whatever, if you are making product X, what sort of obligation do you have to the historic material? And how do you balance it with the dramatic entertainment imperative of what you're doing? And there are many people... Uh, We'll call one of them Mel Gibson, who would argue, who would argue, well, you know, I'm making a dramatic thing, and you know, I, I, it's not supposed to be taken as a history lesson. And then there are people who do try to be true to it, to, to the history. And my problem with, say, like a Mel Gibson in in the, in the Patriot or in uh, Braveheart, which which both have execrable history value, but my God, the man knows story structure. I'll give him that. It uh, it's like, if you're going to change the historic imperative that much, just fictionalize it. Don't say it's William Wallace, who didn't do the majority of the things you have him doing in the movie. Just have a different guy. Do what George Martin did. Make it up. Fictionalize right. it. It works. You can keep that same plot, but you want to trade in on the vague name recognition factor of, well, no, if it's the Patriot... Or if it's Braveheart, then there's a peg to hang it on. Well, okay, if you're going to hang it on that peg, you're implicitly acknowledging that there is value in the history aspect of it. So get it right. And as we both know, the historic story is usually better. It usually is. And you know, the thing is, these movies, I've 
there are a couple of different directions to come from. There's the events that actually historically happened, uh-huh. as opposed to how they're scripted. And there's the material culture yes. shown in the films. And you know what? That is always so atrocious. I gave up that fight so long ago. <laughs> Uh, I'm, now I'm just, if someone gets it right, I'm just impressed right. rather than berating someone. And I know one it. of the ones that does get it right that both you and I are a big fan of are from a few years back, HBO's Rome. The material culture, and for once again, for those of you listening at home or your cars or space stations, whatever the case may be, you know, the material culture is the things you touch and use every day in your life. You know, L- Like we use, like, like we have in museums. <laughs> like we have in museums. Or like you have in your home. Yeah. That's your material culture. So so there are certain programs or endeavors like, like Band of Brothers, Rome, or Netflix's The Get Down, which is set in late 70s, early 80s New York. The material culture is spot on. And if you have a fictionalized story, but you've got the material culture right, it, it goes a long way towards ameliorating any inaccuracies you may have done for dramatic effect. And something like Rome, the over-arc of history, is right. Yes. You know, sure, we don't know what conversation actually happened between Mark Antony and Octavius, but we know that the, that the plot outline of what happens in Rome and what happens in Egypt and when wars happen is right. It's pretty close. The only, the only real liberties they took were... With some of the timeline right. stuff with Cleopatra. Right. But Compressed for storytelling's sake. Because, and uh, you probably know this, Rome was supposed to originally be four seasons. That's right. And halfway through writing the second, the writer was told, oh, by the way, this is your last season. Right. So he basically had to take <laughs> just the other two seasons and go, squish. Exactly. Um, that's neither here nor there. Of course you've got to compress and, and make allowances for, for, right. for real-world logistical issues like that. Right. Another movie, I, actually, I will I will go out on a limb. <laughs> there he goes. Look at him. He's out there. Like I'm out on a limb. I think the best historical movie that captures the spirit of the age in which it is set, the material culture, and everything about it is Master and Commander. <laughs> Master and Commander, which is which is based on a, a series of books by right. Patrick O'Brien, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie is just it's it is so spot on because the books are spot on, mm. and the guy, the, the folks who put that movie together, actually went a long way to the point of purchasing a ship of sail. <laughs> right. With most of the you know half the half the movie's half the budget, budget was right. purchasing the, the ship. Well, because because the ship was going to be the world. Exactly. And so you've got to be able to have the world. And, and, and that, that movie works. Uh, but, you know, the of course we have nothing to base the material culture or the actual historical events of Game of Thrones on. <laughs> but it's, but it still goes out of its way to show that there is a material exactly. culture. Exactly. And, and the different factions have their own look, right. which, is, which is really neat. And mostly, none of that material culture is nonsensical. There's not right crazy armor that looks great in an anime kind of way but in the real world would never ever ever function right the swords the armor the weapons of war the coinage the clothing right. it all seems to work and it all seems to reflect the and the, dra- and the dragons function the way dragons really do they did and, and <laughs> but I'm, I'm sorry I didn't but re- no no i mean but but it because they've taken the time to make that look right, right. To, to give representations and to make the world look real like someone else we know who took great lengths to make a world real, but we'll go into that, and I'm sure in a future session. And who would that be? What are we? What are the we? The great, the one, J.R. Oh. <sighs> be still, my heart. Uh, but talking about making the world real. So 
I will bash Mel Gibson until the end of time for the horrors he committed in, in The Patriot and Braveheart, but he turns around in Apocalypto and creates a world that, while there are some things that one could quibble with, but on the whole is a truer depiction of that world than what he did. As, as, as much as we, as much as we, we know. know. As, yes. And once again, the beauty of that one is telling it from the point of view of that other culture in its terms, right. you know, you know, you do get immersed, or at least I did in that movie, the same way I'm immersed in Game of Thrones, and it's because the world was created and recreated so meticulously, and there's, there's a lot of buy-in to that. You know, of course, the downside to that is, and, and I'm going to use like Mel Gibson's The Patriot, and also uh, <laughs> National Treasure Book of National Secrets. Treasure. Yeah. Yes, yeah, well, found those, the things, those things. Because, you know, Glenn and I work in the history biz where we're oftentimes out on a site or a historic house or something in period clothing and interacting with the public. And those two movies, I have directly had people say things to me that they think are true based on those movies, which, you know, tends to belie a director or a producer saying, well, you know, no, we're making entertainment. It's not meant to be made as, as taken seriously as education. Well, people do anyway. And in the case of The Patriot and Braveheart, when you market it, to schools as an educational tool, which they did. Sorry, you do now have bare responsibility. Like, so when I was working at Mount Vernon, I started working there right after, uh, well, actually, they were shooting the sequences of National Treasure Book of Secrets when I started working there, and then it came out, and we got in and that we'd guess would come up to me. So where's the secret tunnel between the mansion and the river? There is no secret tunnel. Well, it was in the movie. Yeah, that's right. It was in the movie, the <laughs> fictional thing that you saw in a theater. Yes. You know, it's not there, but people believed it. And in, in The Patriot, I will even forgive the egregious blending of Calpins and Guilford Courthouse into one battle. Well staged, but I'll, I'll forgive the egregious nature. Glenn will. But what really rankles me in that one is, there's, and you and I have talked about this, the shot there's a shot that shows this proclamation nailed to a tavern wall. I'm paraphrasing here, but George Washington decrees that all slaves who fight for the patriot cause will receive their freedom. And that's absurd. There was no proclamation like that ever made. George Washington didn't have the power to make it. The Continental Congress didn't have the power to make it. And they were doing their best to keep their slave property, i.e. humans, in check the whole war. And as a matter of fact, it's the British that wound up giving more freedom to more runaway enslaved people. Well, than promising the freedom. Well, the, the, <laughs> the thousands that were evacuated out of New York and Savannah, they did. I mean, they, they eventually they did. did. But they at first did. said, we'll but give the, you freedom, but first you're going to earn it. Well, yes, on this uniform. Yes, right. Yes. Well, yes. But, but in point of fact, and later in the war, the Phillipsburg Proclamation, it wasn't just men. They said your families will achieve freedom as well. So by and large, the British did better by giving people their freedom. But the larger point is that shot of that proclamation is an outright fabrication. Totally. That is taken seriously. And, and that's the thing. It's, you know, I think that it can be argued you do have a responsibility as the director to not tell outright lies. And if you think you need to tell a lie like that, then then fictionalize the whole story and have your, your fictional world offering freedom. Well, because America and its popular cinema can't really deal with slavery yet. But that's a whole... Right. Well, yeah. I mean, tw 12 Years a Slave is like the first step towards yeah. what could be a whole genre of telling that story. Uh, of course, we tell some of that story we here really at the Northeast Georgia History Center with our We have these digital webisodes in which we do give voice to the enslaved. Thanks and to the Trail Digital Studio. Thank, They're available is, to everyone. Which is where we're recording this podcast, as a matter of fact. <laughs>
going to say one thing too that strikes me about Game of Thrones, and it's more subtle, is how, and I think this is a direct relation, especially to Anglo Saxon England, so uh-huh. how the world that we're presented with is living in a time where they look back and see a much greater, more advanced civilization that came before them that they cannot achieve the successes of that civilization. In Game of Thrones, it's old Valyria. Right. Which had, you know, trade networks throughout the world and could build amazing things like King's Landing. Right, right. And the wall, all these things. And it, so there's all these physical structures that are left from an older time in which right. the people in the time now cannot replicate. They can't even begin to dream about it. And that's got to be kind of depressing. Right. Sort of the same way the Anglo-Saxons were living in a world surrounded by Roman massive stone right. ruins, which the Anglo-Saxons could not replicate. Right. And that has to that has to resonate on a very fundamental cultural level right. as, to, as to where their place is in things. Well, and, and since you're talking about the Anglo-Saxons, you know, with the Norman conquest and the Norman invasion, and then what do they bring over? Stone castles, stone churches where the English had been building in wood. It's right. not that they didn't have it, but, but, but yeah, there's, there's very much... They had different cultural priorities. Different cultural priorities, but this, but this whole thing about uh, you know looking back on another time and and wondering what you can do and remembering what that place did has got one of my favorite quotes, and it's uh, played by one of our favorite actors, Jim Broadbent, the the Archmaester uh, in season seven, episode one, Dragonstone, when he's talking to Sam Samuel Tarley. It's that scene where he's dissecting the body of the former Maester, and he's you know they're weighing the liver and all these things. And they get into and they get into the conversation where he, he says to Sam, "Yeah, I do believe you. I believe you've seen White Walkers. I be, I, I believe what you're saying. However, he, here's what the record shows uh, as far as surviving things. And, and he has this thing, and I'm going to read this here. It says uh, he's talking to Sam. In the Citadel, we lead different lives for different reasons. We are this world's memory, Samuel Tarley. Without us, men would be little better than dogs. Don't remember any meal but the last." can't see forward to any meal but the next. And every time you leave the house and shut the door, they howl like you're gone forever. When I, when I saw that episode last year, I just, I just pumped my fist in the air and went, yes, that's what history is. That's what the inquiry into the past is. That, that's what the history profession and living history interpretation. We are the world's memory. It is our job. It is our calling, it is our profession to keep what has come before alive so you can know it when we, the society, needs it. Whether you want it or not. Whether you want it or not. I think that the fact that there's a profession dedicated to that, there's a profession dedicated to putting out fires, there's a profession dedicated to building houses, there's a profession dedicated to healing the body. You know, it takes specialized knowledge and the time to put into it to do those things, just like there is the proper preservation interpretation and inquiry into the past that history is. Should do, be. Do, it should should be, yeah. Should and, you know, do, do you let an amateur take out your appendix? I hope not. <laughs> do you let an amateur build your house? I hope not. Don't let an amateur be the guardian or custodian of the collective memory of your culture. Right. You, you can certainly celebrate that memory. You can certainly partake of that memory. But professionals take care of it and hold it. Right. I mean, and, 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 that, and that means that we have to do it right as well. There's a huge onus on us, and we've discussed this many times, that a lot of people say, well, do this or do that or say that, because, I mean, no one will know. 
Well, that's the point. Our job, right. our calling, our passion, our profession, our ethical basis mm -hmm. is that if we do know, we do it right because that's how you preserve it. That's exactly. how you pass it on. Exactly. Is you've got to do it right. Right. You can't cut corners. Right. And, th and that whole, you know, they won't know, well, that's the whole problem. If they are, if the people, the culture, the whatever is basing their knowledge of the past on something that's wrong, when it comes time to make a decision in a similar situation, they're basing their decision on the wrong thing. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> well, and then there's all, again, oh my goodness. <laughs> How many more hours? I know, we we, this? See, this is uh, why this is why what you thought was going to be an <laughs> innocuous romp through George R. 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 Martin's Game of Thrones. But that's what I like about the Game of Thrones. Yeah, that, that, that the world creation he does, based on historical fact, but taken into fantasy fiction, does illustrate all of these points we're we're making and, and taking. That's why it feels so real. And that's, that's why, why it feels it's so good real. fiction. That's why it's good television that's because right. it seems. Plausible, exactly. Because it is exactly. Because all these things, I haven't seen anything, with the possible exception of dragons, in the series <laughs> that I say that could never happen. Right. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. Most of the time, it's like, oh yeah, I remember when that happened in real life, in fifteen thirty <laughs> right. or twelve ten. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's all parallels, and I think that's what makes Game of Thrones so real. Is that's and that's how it can resonate. Yep. It can resonate because it's. Because it's real. Yeah. In its own way. And uh, I don't know, that's probably as good a place to stop as any. Join us next time for an episode that will be different. Not only different, <laughs> but somewhat the same. Because we'll be here. It'll be then again. It'll be then again. <laughs> yeah, where we pause going. and reflect. <laughs> what do we say we're going to do next time? I don't know. <laughs> Then Again with Ken and Glenn is produced by the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. 